Now, you and I both know it's not easy being a good person. There's a story of a meeting on Yom Kippur of two women who have a history of not getting along with each other, and one of them says, you know, it is Yom Kippur, the holiest day of our year. We should let bygones be bygones. We should bury the hatchet and make peace with one another. And the second one says, you are right. So in this coming year, the woman says, from this now on, I wish for you everything that you wish for me. And the first woman says, there you are, you're starting again. I said being good isn't easy. In fact, Aesop, from Greece, this is ancient. Aesop tells this tale of a genie who comes to a man and tells him that I'll give you anything you ask for, but on the condition that your neighbor gets twice as much. The neighbor this man can't stand. So first he asks for a fortune, which he gets, but then his neighbor gets a double fortune. Then he asks for a beautiful home, and his neighbor gets two beautiful homes. So the man comes back to the journey and says, to the genie, and says, I have one more wish. The genie says, ask, and you'll have it. The man says, I'd like to be blinded in one eye. If you should meet someone and they ask you, why did you bother coming to synagogue on Yom Kippur? Why did you bother to fast or even think about this holiday? It's because you understand, maybe not in a conscious or defining way, but in a deep way. You understand why you come back here year after year. It is because as much as Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur celebrate a new year, they also mark the end of the past year. All at once we celebrate both a beginning and an end. And the ancient rabbis told the story about the prophet Samuel. He was the prophet Samuel who would one day go on to anoint King David himself. Samuel, we are told, lived in a town in Israel called Ramah, like the camp. That's where they got the name from. And every year in the service of the people of Israel, the prophet Samuel would head out of his home in Ramah. And then he would make his way to a town called Bethel, and then to Gilgal, and then to a town named Mitzpah. And then finally he would make his way back to Ramah, to his home. The moment that he left Ramah, his home, to make his appointed rounds, he was already, already on his way to returning. Everywhere he went, he was heading for home. Just like you. Just like me. We come here because we come home. In university classrooms throughout the land this uh, semester, young aspiring students have sat down unwittingly in a Philosophy 101 course, where at some point they'll be introduced to the one essential question that every thinker has to answer. Philosophers, psychologists, scientists have puzzled and struggled over it since the beginning of thinking history. The question that thinkers have come to call simply as the sentence demands your answer. The sentence is also simple. It asks, what does a human being do that no other creature does? We once thought that humans were unique for using language, but this seems less certain year after year. After all, whales and dolphins and monkeys are all known to use language. 
We once thought that humans were unique for using tools, but the discovery of macaques using branches to open the shells of fruits and vegetables have destroyed that. We once thought that humans were unique for doing mathematics, but now we can barely imagine calculating anything without our calculator. We once thought that humans were capable of love, but we well know that's not true either. Years back when I was doing my BA in Israel, I had a professor who I just knew, and I have no doubt that you've had this experience too, that from the first moment I met him and heard him speak, I knew that this person was going to have something important to say to me. That year we learned that Yom Kippur, the way it was observed in ancient Israel, was very different from the way that we observe it now. That very ancient Yom Kippur was observed by the Kohenim, the people we call the priests, a collection of families all descended from Moses' brother Aaron. They were entrusted with the recipe book of sacrifices and rituals that were meant to preserve the nation's sacred balance with both God and fate. They believed that if that balance was destroyed or disturbed, then the life of our people was in danger. But here is a truly remarkable thing. At the very beginning, not only was the observance of Yom Kippur kept only amongst the Kohanim, but most probably, most probably most, if not all other Jews who were alive at that time, didn't even know it was happening. Which is to say, that on the 10th day of Tishrei, today, that our very ancient ancestors woke up in the morning, they milked their goats and their cows, they tended their fields and their animals, and they had no idea that in the heart of Jerusalem that there were priests, Kohanim, that were fasting and confessing on this most sacred day of the year. And how could that be? And that's because the people were entrusted with it. Yom Kippur, they felt, like the Mona Lisa preserved behind some tinted and air-pressurized frame, was a treasure that couldn't be damaged by leaving it in the hands of just regular people. So how did we get from there to here? What did they come to understand so that all that was changed and made into what this is now? Well, let's jump about 3,000 years ahead and look at our lives. Have you ever noticed that cell phone companies and cell phone manufacturers always show commercials of people with other people laughing and holding their phones together? But you know that real life is never ever actually like that. Most people are sitting around a dinner table staring at their phones and not at each other. I had a congregant who told me when he first got a cell phone from work, his wife and children were yelling at him incessantly because he was sitting at the, he was sitting at the dinner table, rifling through emails and texting people. And he said, well, I solved the problem. I asked him what he did. He said he bought them phones too. I said, you created another problem. Most of our communication technology began as diminished substitutes for an impossible activity. We couldn't always see each other face to face, so the telephone made it possible to keep in touch. Because we're not always at home to answer the phone, they made an answering machine so that you could talk without actually talking to somebody. Online communication originated as a substitute 
for telephone communication, which was then considered too much of a bother. And then came texting, which made for faster messaging. But none of these inventions were created to be improvements to face-to-face communication. At the moment they came to life, people knew that they were diminished substitutes. But then we started preferring the diminished substitutes because it's easier to make a phone call than to schlep and go see somebody. It's easier to leave a message on someone's machine than having a phone conversation without actually having the need to talk to somebody. Hard news became easier to leave. It's easier to check in with somebody without actually having a conversation. So then we began to develop strategies. When to call, so you know when no one's actually there. Time passes, and engineers develop connected networks of computers where people can send mail to each other over the Internet. We started realizing that you can shoot off an email, which was easier than leaving a voicemail because there's no chance of people actually accidentally picking up the phone. And here's the hard truth. Each step forward has made it easier, step by step, to avoid the work of being deeply human, which is connecting with people, of doing the hard and challenging work of learning the most essential and demanding task of our lives, It is to move outside of ourselves and into the lives of other people. It is not accepting substitutes for doing what we need to do. The problem with accepting diminishing, diminished substitutes is, is that over time, we end up being diminished substitutes. So each of us are called to answer the question. The question that asks, what are humans being do? that no other creature in the world does. The time was philosophers and theologians and scientists would answer it by saying, we talk, we share, we feel, we care. But a people, humans who are once defined by words and love, have become used to saying little and feeling little. The numbers tell a sadder story. 9% of baby boomers report having no friends. 9%. 27% of millennials report having no friends. Time was only our communications were diminished substitutes. And now it threatens our lives. It's not the first time. We come back here year after year to where the first battle took place for our lives. 2,700 years ago, led by prophets named Isaiah and Amos, saw those Kohanim, those priests, going about their sacred lives, cut off from the world and the people, burning their incest, making their sacrifices, being substitutes for us. And they ask the question, what's the point of all of this if we aren't made better? Why do all these things, the words and the rituals and the laws and the traditions, if it doesn't affect some difference in the hearts of people? Yom Kippur changed because they realized that human life needed more. And it's still true. Your life needs reality and not substitutes. Not absence, but presence. Not more of what they tell us we need, but more, more of what this tells us.
three years ago, I shared a story of an evening in Jerusalem I had with a young wounded soldier named Ohad. That evening, amongst the acacia trees swaying in the evening breeze, he told me a story of being wounded, of marrying only to see his wife die. And between short breaths and small tears, having said to him, you've lost so much, my friend, he turned to me and said, but I've gained so much. If I was to confess to you, my friends, that one of my weaknesses is, is that I have a bent for being too rational. In my heart, I know that there is a curtain that lies behind everything we see, but I struggle to see it. But life gives lessons, and we can learn. And this summer, I learned. This past summer, Lisa and I were in Israel visiting an old friend of hers. She had been asking Lisa for some time to visit a woman she knows who, like Lisa, had suffered the loss of a child. They discussed times and dates. The texting went back and forth, and they agreed. Tomorrow in the afternoon at her apartment in Herzliya. And later that night, Lisa's friend told us more. She had lost not just one child, a daughter, but two. And I caught my breath. Did the first daughter, I asked, jump off a balcony in India? At that time, many Israelis post-army were going to India for travel and disconnecting drugs. Yes, she said. But how do you know that? Did the second daughter, I asked, die from cervical cancer? Was she married to Ohad in a ceremony in her backyard? Is her husband now remarried? Does his Ohad have twins? And now wide-open eyes were staring at me. Yes, but how do you know? And I told her. The next day I drove to Herzliya to see this bereaved mother, Gali, that afternoon could only be described with the kind of words when you meet someone who has been pummeled by tragedy. Broken, but not in pieces. They stumble, but they walk. They live, but with shadows everywhere. Gali is a special woman. That afternoon I asked her if she is still in touch with Ohad, and she shared the story with me. And now I share it with you. On the morning of Ohad's second wedding, he called Gali, telling her that his friends wanted to take him out for brunch and drinks, but he's confused. I don't feel happy, he said, and I don't know what to do because this wedding is only taking place because she died. She told him, of course, to go and that the truth of this moment will come to him and he'll figure out what to do. And that evening, under the chuppah, as is tradition, Ohad was brought in by his parents. The bride, escorted by her parents, is left halfway for the groom to come and retrieve her. And Ohad steps down from the chuppah towards her, but he stops halfway. And there in the aisle is Gali, and he reaches out for her, and he holds her. And tears run down her face, and she tells me this because at that moment, she said that her daughter was not forgotten, and the past is not past, and that her dying was not a death. Maybe our answer is that human beings are the only creation 
that does not live in just the moment. Maybe what is most unique and exclusive to humans is that we build our present from the past and the future. Maybe it is, as Viktor Frankl wrote in Man's Search for Meaning, quoting the great German poet Goethe, who said that if we accept people as we are, we make them worse. If we treat them as what they could be, then we make them what they can be. We are in this moment a record of not only what has happened, but what can happen, of the people that we have lost and the people that we wish to hold on to, of what we have been and what we can be, and what we are asked, what we are each asked in this fragile and gossamer and electric moment is not what will be, but what will I be? How will I love? What will I care for? Will I be for myself or my things? Or will I give to others? To God? To my people? Will I reach for eternity? Or will I sink to the earth? You know the answer. And this morning, you are asked to believe it. Gamar Khatimatov, everyone. A meaningful and good fast. Just a couple of uh, yeshikos while we're waiting for Josh to lead us in Yisker, Dr. Kulp. Um, so yeshikos first to uh, Dr. Kulp and Cantor um, Jackie Mendelson and Rabbi Flansreif for leading us in services this morning. Pazuka um, de Zimra was done by Jack Bognanim, Bog- to him as well, and the ba- 